Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Mike Isretel back on the show. It always feels like it's been ages since I've spoken to Mike. I don't know why. I think it's actually only been about a month since we had an episode come out with you, Mike. But I think I just look back at the good old days when we were doing these like so frequently as almost felt like every week. So I need my mic time and we're back. So it's good to be talking to you, Mike. <laughs> Likewise, Steve. Thanks for having me as usual. And I know people have been enjoying these kind of updates on where guests are and I think people definitely want to know kind of where you are and hopefully they're watching over on IG and they have an idea but I guess they only get little snippets of like Mike looking ridiculous at like 250 pounds with like ab veins uh, but I think last time you were finishing up a really quick mini cut so I guess you've been massing for the for the last month how are things yeah. going very productively I finished my mini cut and I was probably like 242 to 244 after I filled back out. It was like some number of weeks ago. And now I'm like 248 to 250. So legit. Um, and that's not bloated or anything. That's kind of normal. And that's really cool. So I have another two and a half weeks of massing to go. And my hope is that I end up like, like right at 250 or just clear above it. So um, that would be really sweet. And then that's the end of massing. I do active rest for two weeks. Then I go back into like maintenance slash regaining some of the body weight I lost on active rest. And that'll last for oh six weeks or something. Good opportunity for some high quality training, putting on a little bit more muscle. And then um, in the plan is in late August, early September to transition to contest prep, uh, ideally and go through and probably about a 15 week contest prep, get super shredded and see how that stacks up uh, in a show. Cool. You're going to do a gaintenance phase, Mike. I've just heard it. Our only main happening. gain. Not even, <laughs> main gaining. Yes, yeah, it's now called main gaining. <laughs> yeah, I was on Greg Doucette's channel and uh, he's saying main gaining. And I was like, yeah, you know, main gaining, gaintaining, whatever you want to call it. I like gaintaining. Because gaintaining just rolls off the tongue so much better than main gaining. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I guess he had to give his own kind of taste on it or like spin on exactly. it. But yeah, I prefer the the gaintaining. But that's very exciting that you have competition in sights. And I guess last competition, I think I remember, you had quite a long contest prep or it, it seemed like it was a longer one. Whereas this yes. time around, you've kind of kept, you didn't need to, move as far into your off season because you knew you were competing again so you can do it in a shorter time yeah and also i know how fast i can get lean and this yeah. time i'm not actually as uh you know i'm about as fat as i was last time probably a little bit leaner the last time i really was ready to compete after about 14 weeks of dieting although i waited 22 Man, this time I'll have 15 weeks. The interventions I'm using are more calculated. I have all my data. I mean, I know what calories I need to cut. And uh, which is because I took incredible amount of detailed data last time. And last time I was 225, 230 when I started. This time in equivalent conditioning, I'll be 245 to 250. Nice. So that's kind of neat. Hopefully I can step on stage at like uh, more than 225. 225 to 240 somewhere like that body weight we'll see where the cookie crumbles that'd be really neat you know 230 very lean on stage would be kind of cool so see and to remind the listeners are you like five foot seven or 
Not quite. Right? Five, Not quite. Five, six, five, five six, six and a half, whatever. The I had to say higher. I couldn't I've go lower. I've never been five, seven. Yeah. <laughs> in your squat shoes. I'm always like, I'm six foot in my squat shoes. So it's, it's that's fine. It. Like, that's what know, matters. Everyone needs to be six foot at some stage. Uh, what, do you have any particular goals this season or is it just a case of bring your best to stage, see what, where the kind of the cookie crumbles? That's it. Yeah, I think, I mean, personally, that's always the way I've kind of competed. But I guess when you're on the level of someone like Jared and you're kind of, you're shooting for the stars almost because you have that potential, you're kind of more for calculated sure. possibly. But um, it's great to know that you're go. still going. What does Jared do at the end of the day? He steps on stage and sees how it's yeah. going to go. We all have our best laid plans. So we all have hopes. And then, you know, the plan is to just cover it as good as possible. Awesome. Cool. We'll get on to some questions. Um, the first one being from Tyler. Uh, he has asked, what is a reasonable amount of time, sorry, a reasonable amount of weight gain within the first week of transitioning into, uh, from mass into maintenance? Oh, sorry. From maintenance to mass. That makes more sense. Oh, oh, interesting. Um, oh, I thought he was. Maintenance into mass. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, for most people, less than five pounds. Um, because if it's less than any weight, if it's less than two pounds, then I kind of feel like you're not eating enough on mass. Because uh, you got to have some water blood come in with more food and bigger pumps. If it's much more than five pounds, then you just either get a really big bloat response or you're putting in too many cows up front physical activity could be too low um but you know like in the area of five pounds and uh i will say that um just intellectually i'm not sure what we're supposed to do with contrary information um so let's say someone gains six or seven pounds in the first week like um so you know, like uh, a lot of times people are like, you know, what's the, what's, how much weight should I be gaining in the first week? And it's like, you know, there's like a normal distribution probably with a mean of like three to five pounds. And it's totally fine to be outside of that as long as the process is proper. So if you're eating like cookies and pizza and unlimited amounts and you gain 10 pounds, you'll say, hey, is the 10 pounds bad? And I say, no, the cookies and pizza are bad. <laughs> That's what's making you fat, um, you know. But if you just do everything normally like you're supposed to, we have all kinds of guidance on how to do that between our two channels, then, uh, you know, it's kind of where the cookie crumbles. And sometimes people gain a big bloat and sometimes they lose a big bloat. Um, and there's not much, anything wrong with that or anything to do about that as long as you're kind of doing the right stuff anyway. Um, you can't really gain too much weight than is healthy or necessary and transitioning from a maintenance to a mass, unless you really bump your calories a lot. And because if, if this was a cut to a mass, I would say up to 10 pounds is totally fine. Cause you know, first of all, you get bloated real fast cause your body's really fluid or attentive after a cut, but also you don't, you're not really sure how many calories you're supposed to be eating. Cause there's a big divide between the two, you know, cut end of cut and well into your mass is the two very big numbers and you can get them very wrong. It was so far apart. With maintenance, you should kind of know your intake pretty well. And you start massing and you just got to bump by whatever the theoretical amount you want to gain, 250 calories or something per day, and then you're good to go. And then if you gain like 15 pounds of water from that, something's going on. 
but uh, you know, generally speaking, just do the right thing and you won't have to worry about the weight so much. Um, it's almost like when people say like, how much, you know, could I expect to increase my squat in the first six months of lifting? And the answer is like, if you weren't increasing that much, what would you do about it? You know, like, well, I would, uh, I would just change, change my program. Like to what? Shouldn't you be doing a proper program already? Or is it you're trying to get away with doing a bad program? Uh, it's like, oh, that's okay. It's like someone needs to, uh, it's like a school mentality where you're like, well, you know, how much do I need to study to get at least a B on this exam? But the answer is like, you should be studying to learn the material so you can be good at your job when you're an adult, not like trying to get Bs on exams. You know, in bodybuilding, I don't think anyone's really trying to get a B. I think we're all trying to get A's. So do the best job and then stuff will happen. Uh, you know what I mean, Steve? Because there's there's almost in in these kinds of questions, and I don't mean to jump on the, the question asker. And hopefully, I probably didn't mean it that way. But a lot of folks are kind of trying to set these boundary conditions that, you know, if they're hit, they're going to go and reevaluate. Well, you should be reevaluating all the time anyway. <laughs> you should just always be trying to do the right thing. And, uh, you know... It's like, you know, if, how, how, how much can I close my eyes and just drive according to what the GPS says? But open your eyes, open your eyes. There's no reason to close them just yet. So that's kind of my, my take on it in addition to the direct answer. Yeah, I think it's, it's a tricky one because I know a lot of the time people like these hard and fast black and white rules because it makes our life easier. But as listeners to the channel, we kind of don't want easier. We want better and we don't want to switch off thinking like that would be our kind of answer to a lot of the things that maybe i don't know the bros don't like science they don't like to think because we like to think but then we're looking for these kind of hard and fast rules that stop us thinking whereas you can't the body's not like an easy math equation and there are many variables you have to keep an eye out for and for things sure. like this so i completely it. agree i know water weight can like especially in those transitional phases for some individuals it can massively throw them whereas some people will like you said that there's going to be people in that mean whereas there's going to be people wildly either end just do your good like do a good job and if you know you haven't done a good job then i mean the data is not particularly helpful to you anyway no you right? start doing a good job exactly and getting over 250 calories uh, surplus is not that difficult um yeah that's one of the easiest transitions you'll make is maintenance to mass so perfect Cool. We'll get to the next question, which is from Crass. And he has asked, Hey, Mike, I know it's been quite discussed recently, but I'd, I'd like to hear your point on it as well. How can an athlete completely overcome the downsides of veganism when it comes to absolute performance and overall health? Yeah. Covered extensively in my discussion with vegan games. So I need to listen to that. Recapitulating myself. Um, you basically look up a lot of the position stands that the major organizations publish and they talk about vitamin and mineral deficiencies that vegans are likely to have or potentially can have. And you make sure that you're not deficient in any of those by adequately supplementing with them and by making sure that you are tracking micronutrients as well as macronutrients in your diet. Meat eaters don't have to do that normally because they get uh, a huge base covered with their animal product consumption. Vegans can't assume that because they need to sort of manually balance their intakes. So you've got to supplement a lot and you're going to take in lots of protein powder to make sure you get enough protein. And uh, there's tons of position stands that make sure you know what you need to get. And you can always do blood work or speak with a doctor nutritionist and take a look at your diet and say like, oh, am I really deficient in anything or risking it? And they might look and they might do some blood tests or they might do some just nutritional recall where they you keep a diary for a while. And they say, actually, yeah, you know, you kind of just tend to be 
deficient in X, Y, Z, and you need to eat more of this and you go back and forth. So I would say that a, a vegan approaching bodybuilding is in a similar position to someone who's enhanced. You can't take normal stuff for granted. You know, it's just really funny, like natural people will get blood work, which is funny to begin with. And then they'll, uh, you know, unless you're older or something, and then they'll be like, I'm, I'm monitoring my hormone levels. Like what hormone? You don't, you don't, have, you don't have a choice about your hormone levels. They're just going to do whatever they do anyway. Like, what are you monitoring? Uh, it's the same idea I think is with vegans is they should be monitoring uh, pretty regularly if they want to be elite. You know, two times a year, making sure that everything's on point. You're not uh, vitamin mineral deficient in any way. And if you are at risk, then you solve it with eating more of something else and less of something else or supplementing. So it's uh, it's not an intense process, but it's one you got to check the boxes manually because they don't check automatically uh, anymore. I, I really like that kind of simple like distinction between what it is. It's just the vegan diet has some holes in it that need covering so uh what was it was um, vegan gains is the channel right because uh, mm. i also want to check that one out so there's you'd add like an in-depth like was it a debate or is just it's just discussion surrounding veganism and bodybuilding and oh it was a debate yeah okay. so um the first part is more of a discussion because we don't really disagree uh about nutrition so just the first 30 to first 20 minutes of the video is going to be very informative uh the last hour and 30 minutes is an ethics debate Right. So if you like, uh, if you like ethics, um, you might like that debate. If you are vegan, uh, for what you tell yourself for ethical reasons, you may not enjoy that part because I take a contrary position, but I'm also very, very pro vegan throughout the whole thing. And in reality, so maybe something to check out. Cool. No, I'm very interested in the ethics argument as well. So I'll be checking that out for sure. I'm sure a lot of people will be so. Cool. Uh, the next question then is from, uh, Quiva and she has asked, uh, how different can full ROM be from person to person? Following two hip surgeries, I've been told by my physio that I have antiverted hips and my range of motion in a squat is not even to parallel before I'm risking injury. I'm wondering if this is true and if so, can I still build my legs with such limited range? You definitely can build your legs with such limited range. Not a problem at all. Pro bodybuilders do it all the time. It's going to take a little bit more work and a little bit heavier loads. Um, and you absolutely do what your doctor tells you. And if you don't think your doctor's correct, you go get a second opinion from an actual in-person evaluation from a doctor with a history of all the tacticalities of your surgery and your imaging results. You take that all to a different doctor and he looks at it and says, and actually that's kind of insane. You should be able to expand your range of motion over a long time. Or he says, no, that's true. That's just how your hips are now and uh, post-surgery. So I wouldn't risk it. <laughs> Whatever they say is probably true. You know, um, uh, I can't, uh, you know, over Zoom, tell you that, oh, no, like you could full squat forever. I have no idea about the technical nature of the surgery and uh, pretty much zero physical therapists that you ask or uh, personal trainers know the technical details of the surgery. That's for the, the doctors that did the surgery and uh, other professionals in that realm, maybe a sports uh, doctor can tell you, but really probably just a surgeon because they'll be able to know exactly what happened in that surgery and say, actually, yeah, that if you go through a certain range, it's not going to work anymore. Or they'll say, no, you know, that's that's definitely true at the beginning, but eventually you can ease your way back into a full run. I have no idea. Um, and I would say go definitely get a second opinion, uh, if you'd like, from a real in-person doctor that can do an evaluation. Very well said, Mike. I think it's something I always think is worth reminding people, and I'm glad you said it, is that, like, 
you're not a doctor and uh, you're not in that well you are a doctor actually i should say but you're not a not a medical doctor medical doctor exactly and i think a lot i don't know how often you maybe get it mike but i get questions regularly that are clearly for a doctor so about hormones or blood panels uh, about injuries and it's like you said there it's so important to actually listen to the medical professionals in the field because i i'm worried people ask other people within the fitness industry and they will give answers and they're not going to be credible answers yeah some of that we just can't stop but uh also i will say a question i get very often is hey my knee hurts when i do hack squats like what's going on with my knee i'm like well you know it really be about ten thousand different things or it could be like idiopathic pain and there's actually nothing wrong with you and i usually say that's it and i'm like yeah that's it And like, how do I know what it is? Like, you have to go to a medical doctor and move around in a certain way. And he's going to ask you a bunch of questions and, and, or she's going to have you do imaging and all kinds of stuff to really try to figure out what's going on. So for my best advice for now is don't do anything that hurts and then do whatever that doesn't hurt really hard. And then if you want to do the thing that hurts again, try to ease into it very slowly months later when you don't even remember what the pain feels like. So if hack squats hurt my knees, but leg presses feel fine. And so do regular squats. I'll do leg presses and regular squats for months until I don't even like, I don't remember intuitively what the hack squat weirdness felt like in my knees. And I'll try to do hack squats by really just working, you know, at the end of workouts for three workouts straight, no actual meaningful load, just playing with super light load and really good technique of where I can put my feet to where I feel my knees the least. And then uh, I try to include it in the next muscle cycle and going up slowly from higher ups uh, to lower ups. And all of a sudden I've either found a great thing and my knees feel great. Oh, I know how to hack squat. Or I'm like, oh, hack squat's feeling icky again. Better get the hell away from it because I don't want to do anything stupid. And maybe I'll try it in, in another few years or something like that. So. Lovely. Cool. We get to the next question then. And that is from Brett. And he has asked, in your opinion, how much of an effect does indirect work play in the hypertrophy process? For example, triceps in a bench press. A lot, a lot. Um, so like rear delts, you think about the average pro bodybuilder, what they do for rear delts, it's approximately three sets per week. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to do some rear laterals and it's the end of a shoulder workout and they're all tired and lazy. Uh, how do you get championship rear delts doing that? That's crazy. But every single time you do a pulling movement, and I mean every single time, your rear delts are activated probably pretty maximally. So they get a really great training. Um, you know, people say, don't train front delts. They're trained all the time by themselves. You know, they're trained in pushing, which is totally true. And then for some reason, they'll miss the same thing with rear delts. I mean, you train rear delts every time you train back rows and everything else. Uh, does that mean that they might benefit from a little bit more work because it's cool to have really big rear delts? Yeah, that might be true, but you know, they don't need much and they can grow faster if you do a real compliment for them after, you know, your back. Or on top of your back training per week because they are, you know, have generally pretty high MRV. They're not really susceptible to damage. They can take a lot of training volume and recover. But if you don't want to do that, you'll still have really good rear delts if you never train them directly. Uh, another one is traps. You know, most people have muscular traps that train them very, very little or if, if not at all. And guys will talk about like, you got to train your traps. Uh, you can't just do back training. And then these guys will do like four sets of 10 or 12 in the shrug every week. Like, wow, are you really train the shit out of your traps? Holy crap, watch out. Like that's barely anything and somehow they're still growing a lot. So, so that's a, a really big thing. Uh, I will say, you know, another muscle that's very common is the glutes. You know, most bodybuilders don't train their glutes in isolation fashion. That's like, if you're female, you do it all the time. If you're male, you maybe never do it or do it once 
a blue moon, uh, lower back spinal erectors. Most people don't directly train their spinal erectors and they get a crap load of hypertrophy from like all, almost everything you do. So indirect work plays a really big role. And uh, it's one of those, like, if indirect work hasn't made the muscle as big as you want it to be, try a little bit of direct work and see if it helps. And if a little helps, try more slowly until you reach your MRV and you realize, okay, this is the most work I could be doing and still getting a benefit. I know another one, I think we've spoken about it before, is adductors. They've become a little bit more popular to, to isolate as well. Yeah, and I don't know why, because if you're doing proper full ROM squatting and leg pressing and stuff, your adductors may be the limiting factor in your recovery, even beyond, above and beyond your quads. Um, so that's a big one. Yeah, sometimes people get to isolating some stuff that really just doesn't make any sense. Um, so, and then they'll go super hard on leg variants. And then attempt to go quote unquote hard on like the adductor machine at the very end. Like, what is it that you're doing over there that you're accomplishing? Maybe for them, it makes sense for them. It adds, you know, the uh, volume they need, but a lot of those folks also just don't do full ROM and proper foot placement on leg movements. Anyway, like, yeah, I guess if I was in your position, I would need to ask, isolate my adductors cause I don't use them anyway. As soon as you sink in deep lunges and deep squats and stuff, your adductors are really involved and then you don't, you don't have to treat them by themselves, so, yeah. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, it's kind of, to me, they're like- abs. Oh yeah, abs. Um, I was just gonna say the adductors are a bit like lower back in that sometimes they can like you don't want more work there because they right. do start to get in the way and fatigued and yeah, They're you very can't train other prone. muscles. Yeah, you can pull your adductors pretty easily. Uh, nothing you want. Cool. We get to the next question then, and that's from Yerson. And he has said, how would you compensate training volume to someone that trains three times a week instead of five to six times a week? Since the person training three times a week can't do as much volume as the person who does more training sessions? This is in the context of someone who wants to maximize muscle growth. Train closer to failure and prioritize your muscle groups such that for a few mesocycles, you're training half your body first, the other half second in most sessions, and then flip the order next. So you're not gonna be able to grow like your chest, back, arms, shoulders, and legs in the same mesocycle because there's, if you train three times a week, there's only three times a week that you can put something first and really do good diligence to it in a session. So you got to take like half your body and train it real hard first in all the sessions of, of the week, all the three sessions. And that means the rest of your body trains easier on the back end. And then mostly just half of that of your body grows, whatever muscles you put on the front burner grow. And you got to rotate front burner to back burner after a few mesocycles and do it again. That means you grow, yeah slower significantly um and if we try to extend session volume let's say usually we do 20 sets per session total now we're going to do 40. the last 25 of that 40 is going to be pure junk volume and it's not going to be productive from a hyper perspective and also your workouts are going to last like four hours which is stupid so if you train three days a week if you do two a days you can intelligently put together a program that actually grows you almost as much but then that's six sessions per week, just split over three days instead of six. Um, then you would just use the two-a-day principles that we outlined with me, you, Charlie, and Jared. Are, uh, now, hopefully now infamous two-a-day 
podcast. It's the only real comprehensive two-a-day guide on the internet. And people still ask, hey, uh, what about two-a-day trading? And a lot of folks on the internet get on them. They're like, don't you know Google? God damn it. <laughs> Which is actually a valid point. Like, like, you didn't even type this into Google before you asked somebody about yeah. it. That's kind of strange. I usually don't bother, you know, other people until I'm like, well, I Googled it. I couldn't find anything. Let me ask this guy. So, but it's cool. It's cool for them to ask. It's just kind of funny. But um, yeah, I think a lot of folks are, I just want to make sure we, I, I cover this part. There's nothing you can do to completely equate the two. There's no way that getting uh, three days of training per week, if you're sufficiently advanced, is going to get you as jacked as five or six. It's just not going to happen. So if your goals are maximum, maximum muscularity, I would say the first thing you need to think about is how do I get in the gym more often? And the second thing you can think about is, okay, I can't, maybe I can split a PM. Maybe I can go close to failure in my training because I just can't sum up as much systemic fatigue because I only train three times a week. And I need to have a specialization rotation where I do half the body for a few months then hard and the other part easy because I can't, I don't have the time or, or uh, systemic fatigue ability per workout to do the entire body hard. So I have to split. Amazing. Oh, yeah, I think it's, yeah, people want... <laughs> kind of i don't know more from less or what have you in those sort of situations but i think the prioritization that you laid out there makes a heck of a lot of sense and actually it, it made me think in situations where someone maybe are in that sort of situation where they are growing less muscle groups than they potentially could be or maybe their sleep isn't the best or they're a bit stressed i don't know what it could be and they're trying to mass would you recommend do you think sometimes in those cases to maintain or be in a smaller surplus than usual because they, they haven't got the ability to grow as fast. Totally. Yeah. Got to adjust. If everything's really close to ideal, you can drive it pretty hard and get really great results. If it's not close to ideal, you might have to back up unless you want to gain a lot of fat or just not gain a whole lot of anything. Uh, so yeah, be in a good place before you really push it, push it as hard as the, as the place is good. So if you have access to tons of food and rest and great gym, then you can push massing pretty far. If you have not ideal environments, maybe it's time to maintain for a little while. Amazing. Cool. And actually one other thing that the <clears throat> training kind of frequency through the week, I don't know if you hear it ever, Mike, but sometimes I hear kind of people will discuss advanced trainees or even like natural trainees should never be training six times a week because they just can't physically recover from that. They need more rest days in the week and people say like five times a week is the absolute maximum for these individuals. Have you ever heard people discussing mm -hmm. it that way? I've heard people say they get better results from four times a week training than, than six times a week. Um, yeah. Like if your life is that stressful or your MRV is that low genetically, then that's sure. Totally. If your systemic MRV, if you keep bumping into it at, at uh, six sessions a week, but at four or five, you get multiple more weeks of quality training before you get too fatigued. That's definitely can be a thing for most people. I don't think it's a thing. I think for most people, it's uh, one of those, you got to show up to the gym and do what it takes. Also a lot of folks constructing programs are doing a bad job. They do a lot of sets all the way to failure. They get very emotional in their programming or in their execution rather They get real like pumped up and listen to crazy music before they do every working set of their program. Yeah. Like I probably can't go to the gym six days a week like that either. But uh, all that extra mess is probably for no good reason. And you could just be training a little easier, um, getting great results and then training more often and getting even better results. So yeah, if your program is proper, six days a week is usually pretty damn good. And you can even do two a days and stuff uh, like a lot of us do if you're not training like a psychotic person all the time, which is, you know, not as fun or whatever, I guess. But sure, it gets the results. 
yeah, it's, I think uh, the tour days become more challenging in the end of the mesocycle because you almost need a little bit of hype to get through some of sure. the tougher sessions. And so, but I mean, one week of that, you can drag yourself through, but I kind of imagine needing to do that every single day. It just wouldn't be sustainable. Uh, correct. Yes. <laughs> cool. We get to the next question, which is from Ibrahim. And he has asked, well, he said, actually, so I've read both how much should I train and the scientific principles for hypertrophy training. And my question is, do you just train from MEV to MRV throughout the entire macro cycle, or do you end each subsequent mesocycle with a higher number of sets? So by the time you are in the last meso, you end with your actual MRV. No, it's MEV to MRV every time, pretty much. And it's always auto-regulated. Sometimes that can be way more sets. Sometimes that's fewer, depending on the conditions, depending on the exercises, depending on how recovery is going. So most mesocycles are pretty much MEV and MRV, but your MRV changes over time. So sometimes it can grow and sometimes it can go down and you adjust accordingly. Um, we don't really have a number of sets in mind at the end of a meso. When we begin, we just try to target our MEV pretty close. And then in order to chase a proper stimulus, a really good pump, and making sure that we're training hard enough to actually challenge our recovery systems, we raise and lower sets week to week. And then at the end of that, you can look back and go, oh, cool, neat. I did five more sets this week than I did at the beginning. Or you can say it's actually the same number of sets. Um, I have a, a chest workout I've been doing, a chest and triceps workout, where I increased a few sets on the triceps over the last six weeks, but I increased no sets on the chest because as I was progressing through the workout, I was able to add so much load and get so, so much better technique and so much better mind-muscle connection for my pec movements just increasing those variables made my pecs as sore as I would want them to be any more sore I wouldn't recover on time so I was like oh yes I don't have to increase this time and then did the same workout again with more load better technique and I'm like yes I'm still got just a sore and I did that literally for like five workouts straight so I increased no sets but I didn't have to say like, pump was great uh pretty much maxed out and the soreness was healing just before the next workout that's it that's the in our book which which you read abraham the scientific principles of hypertrophy training there's a literal like a flow chart and sort of matrix where you intersect what how sore and recovered you are and it says don't increase sets so a lot of times it could be not increasing sets and if it calls if a set increase is called for it'd be called for once it could be called for every single session uh, and you could start with doing something for 10 sets and end up with 24 sets uh, or you could start with 10 and end with 10. Uh, so it really is purely auto-regulatory at that point. Yeah, I think it's, the for me, the auto-regulation aspects of taking into account the pump and disruption versus just the soreness element was a, a complete game changer. Um, I don't know if you've, you've probably had questions like this, Mike, but where individuals like, I, I never get sore in a muscle group, or they very yeah, rarely yeah. get sore. And in those cases where the person's getting kind of crazy, well, good pumps and disruption, and appropriate for that kind of point within the mesocycle is that those people might be tempted to add sets. Would you say those are situations where despite not getting necessarily sore, if you're getting really good training response within the single session, there's, unless you think it's going to be even better by adding sets, probably right. don't. And yeah, exactly. It's just, just not a good reason to add sets. Sets need to be added for a reason. And uh, it just seems to be not, not a good reason if you have excellent workouts. Um, you know, a lot of times I th I'm of the opinion that when you grab your pecs and they're as pumped as they've ever been, like you're done, you're done, mission accomplished. If you continue to train them, maybe you'll damage them more and you'll finally get sore. 
But then research shows that if you go overboard and damage a muscle too much, it probably just recovers more and doesn't actually grow more. So what is it that we're doing with that? Uh, maybe it's not a good idea. Now, if you weren't maxed out on your pump and you really didn't feel tired in the muscle, someone could say, hey, you should do more work because you're not even pumped or tired. That'd be a good thing. All right, that's actually a good point. But uh, if you get to where you're going, like once I get off the leg press and my quads are so full of blood, I can't hardly move them. Gee, you know, it's just not my first idea to go do more stuff because what are we trying to do now exactly? Go beyond the pump? I just don't think there's any rationale for that. Uh, and if really just you recover super fast, even though you get great pumps, I would just start increasing the frequency of the training as opposed to the per session volume. So. Yeah, that's, that's something I have really used for delts and like biceps in particular, where I might only need i mean two to four sets for some of them but they recover yeah. like the next day so i just yes. end up doing like four times a week or something or Perfect. more sometimes so yeah. yeah that that the pump and disruption within the mix with the soreness for me was like a completely like really opened up the world towards making my training way more efficient and effective because sometimes i'd end up and i i imagine a lot of people do this where they're kind of so conscious about kind of making sure they get sore or something. So they just keep adding sets, but then their training quality, their intent goes down. Cause they're like, I've got all of these to do. I can't go, yes. as, I don't know. They, they just hold back needlessly. And I think I probably have been victim to that in the past. Sure. Me too. Yeah. Awesome. So we get to the next question, which actually uh, is from crass again. He had a few more uh, and we've got a bit of time, I think to get those done. So he asked uh, in context, a man at 25% body fat drops down to 15%, runs a maintenance phase, and then runs another cut to 10%. Is it beneficial to regain fat, not just glycogen, but actual fat tissue during the maintenance phase in order to further drop dietary fatigue and reduce metabolic adaptations related to dieting? And he said, if yes, how much weight would be regained? Same question for gen pop dropping to sub 10%. And then for contest prep, if that made any difference. Totally. For contest prep, yes. For gen pop sub 10%, yes. For a person just going to 10% and then mass massing out of that, then no. Uh, like let the massing do the fat gaining. If you bought, if you drop below 10%, then you have some issues to think about burying your hormone by getting fatter. But um, otherwise, no. So if you just get to 10%, you're good. Like after our respective shows last season, Jared and I both like had to remind each other to eat a little bit more like shit for the first two weeks because we're like, look, not a lot of muscle gain is going to happen unless we gain some fat. And also at that point, we were so lean that training quality wasn't that great unless we got fat. Uh, and as I got a little fatter, I was like, oh my God, I have superpowers in the gym again versus just being a miserable piece of crap. So, but that's, you know, coming down to five, six, seven percent, eight percent body fat. Um, you know, 10, you should be fine. 10, you should be fine and just go back to massing normally. And if you realize that like after you went back up to 12, everything started going real well for you, then just don't mass, don't cut below 12 in the future if you want to have good high quality training. So, yeah. Well said. Yeah, I think something I'm actually interested to hear your thoughts on, Mike, and I'm sure you've heard of this is I think it's more in the assisted side where people talk about this like rebound post-show as if it's like I'm doing contest prep to actually just get this rebound because the rebound's so amazing. I'd love to hear, I don't know, even where that comes from, your thoughts surrounding that because, uh, yeah, it sounds like yeah. a bit of a myth. Yeah. So, like, the post-contest rebound is more easy to pull off in folks that are enhanced because they don't have to worry about endogenous hormone levels. 
your testosterone is as high as you want it to be after the show. Uh, it doesn't take a hit because it's not even natural testosterone. And your insulin sensitivity is going to be really high. And insulin sensitivity may prevent enhanced people from gaining as much as it does prevent naturals. Because a lot of times enhanced folks will use growth hormone, which reduces insulin sensitivity already. They have to use exogenous insulin to keep it propped up. That loop closes itself after a while. You have to shoot a lot of insulin. It's not very healthy. You get very big and bloated, a lot of side effects. And you do grow some muscle. But after the show, you can be so lean and so sensitive to nutrients that you don't have to use much in, uh, injectable insulin at all. It, maybe sometimes even none of it. And you can run the same growth hormone dosages you want to run and uh, cool shit happens. And, but, it, you know, so physically there is a basis for it, for especially folks that are um, after prep. And, and also you're very lean. So you have a big runway to like take advantage of massing. Like, you know, finish a show at 5%. Gee, you know, you can mass until you're 15%. That's a 10% to gain. That's a lot of additional tissue to gain, additional muscle to gain just on your way up. You know, so that's definitely a benefit because if you're 15% in the off season, someone's like, let's gain some mass. You're like, where, where are you supposed to go? Gain even more weight and get even fatter and get way outside of my contest prep uh, timeline situation. No, like that doesn't not sound realistic for me. So I'm going to really wait until I'm super lean to give myself enough runway. So the runway thing definitely applies and, and to naturals as well. After natural, you know, natural could start out 18% fat compete at, you know, four or 5% fat. And then a few weeks later, be at 8% fat, pretty healthy and well, you know, that 8% to 18%, that's, that's 10, 10% of a runway to gain. So yeah, you, can you get like that after a short diet? Yes, you can, but most people don't know about short diets. Most people have just two kinds of diets in their head. One is mass gain and one is fat loss for contest prep. So they'll use a prep to potentiate where you could just be using mini cuts or just conventional cuts to 10%, 8% in order to uh, repotentiate yourself. So I think that's kind of how it plays out. Awesome. Yeah, I think the, I always forget, of course, that the hormones for a assisted person are going to be in a much better position. But like you said, you're still fatigued yourself, still as an assisted person, you benefit from having a little bit more body fat on you and things like this. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I imagine psychologically as well, just having a bit more freedom to eat a bit more during that period of sure. time um, is pretty helpful. So sure. yeah. Also, maintenance is kind of ruled out in most cases after a prep because how the hell do you maintain four percent body fat you just don't so you're gonna gain you're gonna gain mass one way or another you're gonna gain fat one way or another you might as well ride the next couple of weeks and gain a bit of muscle with it too because otherwise you're just gaining pure fat which is fine but maybe you could do a little better yeah fantastic cool uh we'll get to the next question which is when is it better to run a long cut over a mini cut and why yeah Mini cuts are only good for two things. Temporarily improved appearance. If you have like a photo shoot coming up in four weeks and you need to be as shredded as possible, a different kind of mini cut. And then another kind of mini cut is to designed to potentiate mass gains. And it only runs for four to six weeks or two to six weeks, depending on the situation. So the when would you use a conventional cut is if you have long-term fat loss goals, the conventional cut is the answer all the time. And if you do actually want to lose some fat so that you can make more runway for yourself to gain muscle later. If you need to lose more fat than a six week mini cut can do for you, then you do a conventional cut. That's really just, that's how you decide, that's it. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. 
And I know, I think in the mini cut manual, there's <clears throat> after you've done like one mini cut, you recommend possibly front ending the mini cut with a bit of maintenance to kind of drop fatigue. Mm-hmm. Is that something you'd recommend if someone say they were in that position, they've done contest prep, got really lean, huge runway, but they want to drop in some mini cuts to keep that runway going as long as possible. Do you have kind of a, maybe a, a limit to how often you just mini cut and you don't incorporate any of these phases or is that and again, as often as there's no black works. and white answer. Well, so yeah, as often as it works is the best answer. Cause you'll go through a, a period where your, your fatigue will be so high that you do a mini cut and it doesn't potentiate you for anything. It just makes you really tired. Yeah. Um, but usually you can get two mini cuts out of those situations. Three is asking her a lot Four successive mini cuts starts to look like, uh, maybe you're not training that hard. Uh, but, uh, generally then you want a maintenance phase or an active rest and then a real fat loss phase, um, because the mini cuts can't be as powerful as they used to be. So uh, cause more fatigue, so on and so forth. So yeah, you know, two to three, I think, uh, one thing people ask is, can I do infinite mini cuts and massing forever? And the answer is unfortunately not. You have to take longer breaks sometimes and you do get quite, quite a bit fatter. So you have to take longer fat loss phases in most cases. Um, so no, unfortunately we didn't like discover the Rosetta stone of bodybuilding with mini cuts. Yeah. I think it, that's kind of the question I was alluding to, cause people do get really tempted. And in my personal experience, when people are doing that, they're kind of that more adipose phobia type of person. And it's yes. kind of a bit of a yo-yo diet where they're not really linearly getting bigger over time, which I guess you should be in the long run in like a macro cycle for massing. So yeah, I worry people use them as just like a, yeah, they just get scared and they're like, oh, I could just mini cut. It potentiates more massing. It's great. <laughs> Definitely. And then they don't gain a whole lot of weight at the end of the whole thing. 100%. Yeah. Have you got time for one more question? Yep. Perfect. So we'll cover this one off, which is uh, when it comes to back training, pull-ups, for example, I feel like at three RAR, I have three more full top quality reps in me and another two or so where my chest comes an inch or so from touching the bar even though the sfr on those reps would be less optimal would the difference not be insignificant yeah it'd be significant the problem is how do you track that how do you track your strength how do you make sure you don't get hurt and also why not just do another set of good technique pull-ups afterwards instead of putting all your bad technique pull-ups towards the end of a set I think a lot of folks approach this problem, not that they say the question asker is, but they uh, just assume that you only have a finite number of sets to do and you got to do as much as you can in each set. And why not just do uh, each set really, really well, have a standardized motion, make sure to get all the great SFR, and then just do four sets instead of three, where you do a set of four pull-ups at the end in uh, set number four, and you cover all your bases and you get just as much stimulus as you would from three sets but you don't have to grind super close to failure and or beyond it. You don't have to do partial reps and wonder like, yeah, I think I got my chin over the bar. Maybe uh, it's a, difficult for tracking. So I think that most of the answers are, uh, you know, should I violate good technique in order to get more of a stimulus? The answer is generally no, comma, just do more sets if you need more stimulus with good technique. I think a lot of guys are trying to conquer the world with one set, you know, like, uh, how do I get the best bicep set? And I'm like, just do two sets that are really good. And then you get more effect probably than the best possible single set. So uh, it's funny because if you look at the studies in beginners, at least in most intermediates training to failure versus not to failure two two reps shy is roughly the same hypertrophy and doing three versus four sets per session, four sets almost always gives you notably more gains. 
So people are like, should I do three sets all the way to super failure or should I do force of maximal sets? The literature says force of maximal sets pretty unequivocally. So it's always curious when people are like, I don't know, I just kind of want to do three all out. Like, well, that's cool. That's an emotional predilection you have. That uh, probably is not the best idea in the world. Yeah, I do find a lot of people often, I think that's where a lot of people miss it with using RAR, where they're like, I want to get everything, the most stimulus from this single session. And that means failure. Like I leave everything on the table every session. And I think that's where the same thing comes with like using partials, like force reps, using trying to find the perfect exercise as the perfect yeah. strength profile to kind of uh, kind of strength curve to resistance profile, or what have yeah. you. And it's like, well, that's not that's a like single session. It's not a long term plan. Why we can utilize periodization and things like this to get overall a better result long term. Yeah, I think I forgot who made this quote, but. They said something to the effect of, if you train every session like it's your last, you're right. It soon will be. <laughs> That's a good quote, actually. I was thinking you were going to say a Mel, Mel Sith quote was like something like, uh, or was it Mel Sith? No, it wasn't Mel Sith. Um, it was from super training. It was something along the lines of like any idiot can train an idiot into the ground. But sure. like that's not Very a long-term successful Correct. approach. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we have like the whole YouTube channel for RP and we train people super hard every Monday and put it up and uh you know people ask like why are you training everyone super hard and i say well we typically do the last workout of a mesocycle so you guys know what that looks like that's that's part of the answer the other part is people watch videos if they're really exciting and people going close to failure they don't typically watch week one videos um and that's one of the reasons we you know youtube is mostly education and part entertainment so we have to do that but uh, people please don't assume that we train like that all the time we almost always say in the description, it says like, we don't train like this all the time, but you know, so few people read the description in a video. Yeah. No, I think I actually may have even seen those comments myself. So it's good that at least some people will listen to this and hopefully they'll be able to watch those videos and be like, oh, okay, now that makes sense. And I mean, if they know you, your content enough, they could probably could have made some of those assumptions themselves well enough. <laughs> sure. I like a lot of people turn into junior social theorists when they see stuff like that. They're like, you're propagating the idea that we all need to be training hard all the time. Like I am like, yeah, like you just show hard training. I'm like, Oh, it's interesting. Like, do I propagate the idea that you should be photographing all of your meals? They're like, no, like, well, I photograph all the meals you ever see photographed. You ever think about that? Uh, so yeah, like, you know, I'll be very blunt about this. Uh, I don't mean it a hundred percent, but a part of me means it. And I think there's a gem of maybe some wisdom there is if you take your training insight by copying YouTube videos and Instagram posts, I hope you get bad results and I don't care if you get hurt because for that audacious attempt to not think and have great results, I think the universe should be punishing your dumbass. You're really punishing yourself. So if you really care about how things go and you get books and books on tape and long form YouTube videos where it's multi-part series, like we have, you have on Revive, we have on RP that really dive into a subject and cover its basis. If you don't want a holistic understanding of training, don't be prepared to have effective training. You know, if someone's like, yeah, man, I go hard every session because I see what, that's what you guys do on RP. I'd be like, ah, sweet, you've never read any of our books. Um, and we always say how it's important to be smart about shit, read books, you clearly don't listen to us. Like if you're gonna monkey see, monkey do and copy anyone's channel, RP and Revive are great channels to copy, but you can do better than that. Um, so, you know, it's always, uh, it always kind of frightens. It always kind of, ugh, kind of weird feeling when people 
see me do an exercise and they're like, Oh my God, I, I love that. I'm going to borrow that exercise. And I got, I hopefully the SFR, if it makes sense for you, uh, don't just do it. The other worst one is like, uh, you know, I'll do a leg session of specific exercises and loads and sequences. And someone will be like, Hey man, I love this. I, I saw it two days ago and I tried it and it was amazing. I'm like, God damn it. You're trying to verbatim workouts. <laughs> um, so hopefully they're not using the same load at least, but, uh, Sometimes people like want to take a shortcut, uh, willful shortcut from thinking. I just have no, uh, I have absolutely no sympathy in that case or minimum sympathy. Another one is like, if there's nuance to a post and then um, you make the post itself, like the Instagram picture is some text, but there's nuance in the description and people just clap back to you about the text. Like, well, that's not true for all people. I usually like to get snarky back because we're all playing the snark game. I'm pretty good at it. I'll be like, oh, interesting. Uh, I should have thought of that and put that in the description. And they usually don't reply back because they'll read it. And like, Fuck, it's in the description. Like if, if you don't read things to completion and you pop off at the mouth uh, beforehand, I, you should be embarrassed. You should say stupid shit and people should make fun of you because what are you doing? You're an adult. You know, you're not four years old. Uh, that's a really common one with like YouTube videos. Like uh, someone will post a video like, is squatting all the way down good for your knees? And half the responses are like, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? Guessing for fun? Why don't you watch the video? And then you can have something insightful to say, like, well, I think in one of your examples, after the patella doesn't literally do that. Like, no, now we're talking. You know, like, we don't need your best guess. It'll do the Instagram too. Like, yeah. I'll do a video thumbnail of an Instagram. You know, like, do squatting low hurt your knees? And people will answer an Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's fun. Uh, but then they'll ask questions about training later and be like, hey, what do you think of this progression? I'll be like, shut the fuck up, dude. You're not a thinking person. You start thinking, start thinking for yourself. Show me you can do it. And then I'll give you all the information you want. Oh, wait, I've already done that with like a thousand books and articles and YouTube videos. So it just it's just funny when we worry about unintellectual people getting the wrong idea because we're not sufficiently caveating our videos or something like that. Like those people are not going to get the right idea either way. And if they wanted to get the right idea, they would simply have to read any one of our major publications and realize like, oh, RIR, like, I wonder if they have any videos about this. Oh, there's a ton of videos. I shouldn't be training to failure all the time, uh, which is cool. Like the um, responsible YouTube commentators oftentimes come back and they're like, why does Dr. Mike train to failure all the time? And they'll be like, well, he actually doesn't. He explicitly says these videos are only the end of the mesocycle. And if you read and look at anything else he does, including his own training, he hardly ever trains to failure. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. You're willing to conclude an entire training philosophy off one video, not even of Dr. Mike training. Word up. <laughs> that's if that's how you're reasoning, then shit, you know, the whole world is your oyster. Yeah, I can, I feel you on that a lot. I think an easy thing that I think a lot of listeners will be able to relate to at least is <clears throat> not posting up. Like I know Charlie in particular is, I've seen him say this. He doesn't post up his macros because mm -hmm. it's just like, it's just not helpful to you. And he knows people are going to copy it. And is, people seem to understand that, I think. But people don't seem to understand it with training. So like your training, like you're 250 pounds at five for six, like you're a completely different individual to the majority of the people watching, trying to get as jacked uh, and sure. they carbon copy it and they hope they see the same. On, on that note, really quick, a recent fun question I got over and over, I'll probably continue to get this the rest of my career is uh, why on like when I'm doing flies or presses, why at the bottom do I bring my head up? And the real answer is if I retract my scaps, my shoulders and traps are so big now, I can't lay my head down. Like as I come down, my traps get in the way and they physically scoot my neck up for me. <laughs> it's not even voluntary. 
And if I tried to keep my neck back, I'd be like, oh, I had to choke myself and then back. So like that is not a, how many of our followers have big enough traps to where they choke themselves to death on the way down? Almost no one, but I get profoundly curious about it, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. But then you read a few books and you're like, oh, idiosyncrasies and technique usually mean nothing. Like, you know, I'll watch a lot of other bodybuilders like, like Ian Valier or whatever from Canada or Sebum, and I'll notice how they Smith machine squat or press. And I'm not inclined to ask them any questions because I know they're doing the basics right and the rest just kind of quirks. You know, like sometimes they won't go all the way down and touch their chest. And I know maybe that's because they've had shoulder trouble and it just feels bad lower than that. Or someone told them that you're not supposed to be doing that and they think it's optimal. Like, I'm not going to go in there and be like, why do you do that? Like, it's unlikely they've thought it through enough to justify it well. And also it might just be idiosyncratic to where they just works for them. You know me, like when I put my hands on the squat bar like this, because I physically can't fucking yeah. get a squat bar between my hands. Uh, you know, people are like, what's the benefit of that grip? Like, it's it's a good question to ask if you don't know a whole lot. If you know a pretty decent amount, you may ask it once or you may ask it never. And they'll be like, well, I don't know why fuck he does that. But clearly the rules of stability under a squat mean you should be grabbing it. Maybe he can't for some reason. But to suppose that there's some kind of magic there is just funny. It's like that. You're going to copy everything someone does, you know, yeah. uh, especially it's funny when, like, you know, we're all intellectuals or whatever. We claim to be smart about training at pros that just don't think at all get asked the same questions. Like, so what's the deal with the technique on curls here? Like technique, this motherfucker barely alive with his IQ. <laughs> He's just flailing around. He doesn't know what technique means. He thinks it's, it's called form, you know, <laughs> like you're not getting any information out of him. So as a wise consumer on social media, Try to be attentive to the basics, read up about the basics, how these work, and then adjust them to yourself. And if you see something quirky that a lifter does, maybe you can ask him or maybe you can try it yourself. And if it just doesn't make any goddamn sense, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If it instantly makes everything go better, like if you see someone wearing weightlifting shoes and you're like, what are those for? Then you actually read up about heel elevation, try to borrow someone's work boots and squat on those. And you'll be like, oh my God, I feel so much better. And then and they get weightlifting shoes. But if you squat in work boots, and you're like, I don't know, it doesn't feel any different to me actually just hurts my knees, then don't get weightlifting shoes. Uh, a lot of people get caught up in these crazy details. Like I have to have this, right? I have to have this. And it's like, you know, do you feel like you need it? Like, no, like you're probably really good when you could fully understand what this is, then you can really choose whether or not to have it. If you don't understand why something can benefit you, it shouldn't be very curious to you why, why you should be doing it. Yeah. Really well said. I think that's just a, a classic case of kind of missing the forest for the trees where people are so focused on those tiny little details whereas if they just kind of took a moment to read your books probably uh they'd have that foundational knowledge where then they could look at what you're doing and be like that's probably what it is it's probably sure. not any special thing yeah. it's mike being a huge beast or just like a weird person that does yeah. the weird hip tilt thing before he squats yes like uh just, just this weird thing uh so yeah that's the case yeah. and i think that's also important just with technique in general people like to think there's like a perfect technique but there are, like you said, the little individual differences. We're all built that tiny little bit different. As long as you've got the basics right there, like you might have a wider stance, narrower stance, feet more in, out, what have you. So long as you're getting up and down and keeping your feet on the ground, that sort of thing, For you're sure. at a good spot. For sure, 100%. Awesome. Mike, I want to say a massive thank you again for taking the time for this podcast. Is there anything in the books coming out? I know you've done some work with uh, Greg recently. Have you got anything else coming along those lines? We do have stuff coming. I think him and I recorded like 10 videos and he's only released like two or three. So Amazing. there's more to come. They're all like very short. Um, and then more YouTube from 
RP. So Yahoo. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to check Mike's stuff out. I'm sure you already are. And we'll catch up with you very soon. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.